Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. Welcome herstorians and herstory buffs alike to a very special episode of Whining About Herstory, where normally two best friends whine about women from history that you probably haven't heard of, but deaf should have. But today we have the distinct pleasure of whining to a woman that you may not have heard of, but definitely should have, and certainly will, Miss Sylvia Foti. Sylvia is a journalist and author of The Nazi's Granddaughter, also known as Storm in the Land of Rain, uh, who took a deep look into her family history and uncovered a story that that some still refuse to believe. Uh, And we are joined with her today. Sylvia, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to try not to lose my crap right now because I'm so excited. It's so nice to be here, Emily. It's truly an honor. Thank you so much. Um, So... We like to get our interview started uh, in the way that, in the, in the same way. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? It's the question everyone hates, so I must ask it every time. <laughs> uh, sure. I was born in Chicago, uh, 1960s, and my parents came from Lithuania and raised me to be a good little Lithuanian girl and uh, spoke only Lithuanian until I was in kindergarten because that's what Lithuanian families did uh, from Market Park in Chicago. They wanted to really preserve that Lithuanian culture because Lithuania was occupied by the terrible communists. They took the, the homeland away from my parents and I and everybody pretty much my generation who grew up Lithuanian uh, felt that it was our job and our duty to do all we can to help this country that was taken over by the communists. And, um, you know, all my life I heard about my wonderful grandfather, who was this big World War II hero, Jonas Nureka, and all that he did for the fatherland. And, um, you know, my mom had been working on this book about her father for decades, like through the 60s, through the 70s, through the 80s, uh, through the 90s. And uh, I just grew up always in awe of the story and waiting for her to finish this book. And um, in the year 2000, she got very sick. She was only 61 then, which is like my age now. And uh, she uh, was in the hospital and I was holding her hand and she looked not good. And at that time, I was a journalist. I had been a journalist for 20 years, and now I'm a high school English teacher. But, um, you know, she took my hand and she said, Sylvia, you have to write the book. And, of course, I knew what book she was talking about. We talked about my grandfather a lot, and I thought I knew a lot about him. But, um, you know, when your mom is dying... You can only give her one answer. And so I said, yes. And uh, it was a pretty much an insane deathbed promise because I had no idea what I was walking into. And um, I guess that's the setup to the story. So first of all, bless your heart for being a high school English teacher, (laughs) because as a former high school English student, I can tell you it is not easy. It is. It's. Uh, do, do, do your students know about your book? And Oh, yeah, I talk about it all the time. I've got a, a poster up, and every time some, something comes out about it, I'm like, do you want to uh, study vocabulary? See Miss Foti on the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it required reading? Like, okay, we're going to study my book today. <laughs> no, it's not required reading. A, a couple students have read it, but you know how students are today. They yeah. think it's cool. I wrote a book, but... Not, not many of them have actually read it. Right, that's yeah. as far as it goes. It's like, oh, cool, my teacher's an author. <laughs> moving <Done>. on. <laughs> right, moving on, moving right along. Yep. <laughs> so growing up on your grandfather's story, like what was your understanding of his story prior to starting authoring the book yourself instead of your mother? So uh, I only knew that he was this magnificent World War II hero. He has a school named after him. He's got streets named after him. 
Um, it, he died a martyr for Lithuania's freedom. He died in the KGB prison uh, at the tender age of 36 years old because he was fighting for Lithuania's freedom. Before that, he was in the Stutthof concentration camp, uh, a Nazi concentration camp. So I was led to believe that he was there because he tried to save Jews. Um, before that, he um, was ahead of the Shaolei uh, district. And then before that, he um, helped win Lithuania's freedom from the communists in 1941 by leaving the charge in the northwestern part of Lithuania. Um, so that's, all, that's basically what I knew. In 1997, my mom was invited to go to Lithuania to receive the highest honor possible uh, for her father. And so my grandfather received, it's called the Cross of the Vitas, which is the highest honor Lithuanian government can give you know, to somebody posthumously. And uh, I was at my mom's side, my brother was on her other side, and this, the President Brazauskas at the time gave my mom this big honor, and we were just so proud uh, of her, of my grandfather. So that's basically all I knew. Okay. Yeah, like, and that's, you're going to grow up with stars in your eyes for that person if that's what you grow mm -hmm. up knowing. So... As you mentioned, your mother was working on writing this book and telling the story of her father, and you were obligated by this very extreme deathbed promise, but then your grandmother, who is Jonas's wife, didn't want you to finish the book. So could you, could you tell us a little bit about that and kind of the differing stances that they had? Yeah. Um, so five months later, <clears throat> my grandmother's dying. And of course, you know, it's very hard to lose a child, even, you know, in, in your 80s. So so my mom passed before my grandmother. And now my grandmother uh, had like her third heart attack. And uh, now she was on her deathbed. And uh, I come to visit her and she takes and, and she takes my hand and she's like, how's the book? And I said, uh, it's going fine, Mochute. Mochute means grandmother. I said, it's going fine. I, you know, I'm young. At the time I was 38 years old. I'm going to get it done. I'm not going to let it go the way mom did. I'm, I'm really going to promise you that I'm going to get this book done for you and for mom. And she says to me, don't write the book. Just let history lie. There's no need to dig around. And my head is spinning. I can't understand why she's saying something uh, so off like that. And I, you know, all I could think of is she wanted to like give me a pass because it is a rather large promise I made to my mom. And I thought she just didn't want to burden me. And um, I said, no, I promised mom on her deathbed. There's no way I'm not going to do this. Of course I'm going to do it. And, uh, you know, she just kind of turned around in bed and faced the wall. And so I had her back, her back was to me. And that was the end of the conversation. She was tired, I left the room. And that was probably the last conversation we had. Oh, wow. So in the span of just a few months, you have had two very serious deathbed conversations with the women in your life. <laughs> That's, uh, and, and very conflicting. Like who, who yeah. do you listen to? <laughs> Well, I thought mom asked first and I was, you know, <laughs> closer to mom than my grandmother. And so I thought that deathbed promise prioritized the one my grandmother was trying to ask me. Although I had no idea why my grandmother did that yet. Yeah, I was say, yeah, I'm sure you're kind of like, oh, maybe she's confused or like you said, trying to give you a pass. Like your mom worked for however many, you know, decades on this and you don't have to worry about it. You know, that. That would probably be my thinking too, because you're just like, why? Why wouldn't you want this story written? Yeah, I had, I had. I, what really was the reason? I had absolutely no idea yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it didn't even cross my mind as a possibility. Right. Um, so you had conducted a lot of your own research prior to traveling back to Lithuania, um, and why was it so important for you to go back to Lithuania to pursue this story? And what were your expectations when you went? Well. Um, I didn't, 
I didn't do a lot of research yet the first time uh, I went to Lithuania after mom's and grandmother's death. Uh, so mom died February 2000. My grandmother died July 2000. And they both wanted to be buried in Lithuania. So uh, we decided to bury them in Lithuania in October 2000 of that same year. So I didn't have still a lot of time to do a lot of research. I, I'm still a journalist at the time, young children. So, and this was kind of totally a side project. Um, but I thought, you know, while I'm in Lithuania, you know, maybe I'll learn something new and, you know, I'll take notes. And I thought, you know, everything will be good for the book anyway. But um, we bury my mom and my grandmother at the burial, the, the first president of Lithuania after Lithuania gained its independence in 1990, attended that funeral with his wife and it's mainly because of my grandfather who was known as General Storm in Lithuania. And um, so after the funeral, um, they had just put up a plaque for my grandfather on the Robluski Library, which is uh, uh, used to be the Academy of Sciences building in Vilnius, which is the capital of Lithuania. And it's on, a very prominent corner with like six streets coming to it, you know, very large building. And my grandfather uh, worked in that building uh, 1945, 1946, um, trying to mastermind freedom again uh, from the Soviet Union, because now Lithuania was occupied for the second time by the Soviet Union. And he was, um, he was a soldier, he was a lawyer, so he was working as a lawyer at that time in that building. And um, so they take us to this plaque that was just put up, like basically uh, in my and my brother's honor, because they knew we were gonna be there in that October 2000. So I think it just went up like a week before we arrived. And so we went there also with rather great fanfare put bouquets in front of the plaque and candles and said prayers and our thoughts and everything. Um, and then the day after that, my brother and I were invited to visit the school named after our grandfather, the Jonas Noreka Grammar School, which is in a tiny, tiny town in Northern Lithuania called Shukone. Um, it practically borders Latvia. And um, he was born in this little town. So uh, we come to that school and the, everybody's waiting for us. The children are holding flowers in their hands and they're singing really nice Lithuanian songs. And uh, we were greeted very grandly, like, like we were rock stars or something. I was going to say, it makes and, it sound like you're a princess or yeah, something. I know, like, you know, it really felt like it. It was really feeling like it. And, um, you know, we get to the school, you know, we get to the school and then, um, I, uh, what else? We were we got we got invited into the principal's office, and all the teachers were kind of standing around. And he says to me, "Oh, I heard you're writing the book about your grandfather that you took the project over from your mother." And I said, "Yes." He said, "You're such a good daughter for doing that." I said, "Thank you." And then I said, "You know, as long as I'm here, maybe you could tell me how you named the school after my grandfather, because I had never really heard the story, and I'm thinking." you know, it'll be good for the book. And uh, he says, well, before, you know, we had this horrible Russian name because Lithuania was occupied by the Russians. And we and once Lithuania got its independence, we wanted a good patriotic Lithuanian name. And of course, your grandfather's this magnificent legendary hero who was born in this town. And so we decided to name the school after him. And I thought, uh, okay, well, that makes sense. And I thought that would be the end of the story. But then he pulls me to the side and he says, but you know, I got a lot of grief over naming the school after your grandfather. And I said, grief from who? And he looks at me like I should know this. And he says, from the Jews. And, and I'm like, what could the Jews possibly say about my wonderful grandfather, whom I love so much? And... Um, he has a funny look on his face and he says he was accused of killing Jews. As if you should know this. Yeah, like, don't like, you know this very common this. knowledge? Yes, yeah, it's a common yeah. fact, apparently. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, I was shocked by his tone of voice that it was, he said it so matter of factly. And I was, you know, doubly shocked by just the, what he said, because I had never heard, it was not common knowledge to me that everybody had hidden it from me. Um, and so I almost fainted when he said that. Uh, my knees buckled, you know, I I did not feel good. I needed to sit down and I'm like, you know, my whole world has just turned upside down and I don't understand. And he can tell I'm upset and he's like stroking my arm. And he says, don't worry, it's all in the past. You know, everybody's happy. The school's named after your grandfather now. And, uh, you know, that's just communist propaganda. It's not true. So, um, so then, you know, I, I, I obviously once you hear it, you can't unhear it. Yeah. And uh, so now it's stuck in my head and I don't know what to do with this. And so I come back to Chicago and I start talking to everyone. I'm like, you know, my father and, you know, uh, some of my mom's friends. And um, I'm like, have you ever heard this rumor of Jonas Nareka killing Jews? And they're all like, yeah, we heard it. I'm like, what? Was How come nobody ever told me about this? Like, cause you, said, you said you talked to your dad and like your mom's friends. Did your, did your brother know? No, my brother had no idea either. Okay. So they just kept it from the kids. Right. They kept it from the okay. kids, even though we were like in our late thirties. by then. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it, the, the rumor was supposed to die with you. And that was certainly not the case. I think so. Or yeah, I think the rumor was supposed to die with my mom. Because, you know, my generation just did not know about it. So, um, and nobody my age really knew about it. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like, you know, my parents' age. And my parents were children at the time. So they only heard the rumor. They lived the rumor. But my grandmother definitely was an adult at that time. So she definitely knew is what I think now. So, um, but because... Uh, it was my dad and, you know, his generation, they had heard the rumor and they're, they were like, but it's not true. It's just communist propaganda. You know, the communists are very tricky people and they always making things up and they don't want Lithuania to have, uh, any heroes. So they just, anybody who, you know, is kind of a rising star in Lithuania and that anybody Lithuanians could look up to. The Russians just make up horrible, horrible stories about them to crush all encouragement among Lithuanians. So uh, that reasoning was very widespread in the Lithuanian community here in Chicago. And me being a good Lithuanian thought, okay, that must be the truth then. So I went into denial along with everybody else. I think that's understandable. Uh, like, yeah. you don't want to believe something like that's going to be true, especially about someone you've admired your whole life. Yeah, it was an easy out. It was really the easiest path to take. Uh, the problem is, is that I was a journalist. I think that's that's the problem. <laughs> you just gonna, you're like, I can't let this go. No, <laughs> I'm like, dang, you know, I ha I have to like. Uh, look into this now that I heard it. Like, you know, I have to do my due diligence. But I really thought, okay, I'm going to look into it. I'm going to disprove it. I'm going to exonerate my grandfather once and for all. And we're going to dispel this rumor. So that's kind of how I decided to look into it, even though it took me 10 years to decide to look into it. So I still kind of lived in la la denial land for almost 10 years. And in those 10 years, um, I looked into like my grandfather's heroic side and that literally did take me the decade uh, to do anyway. Cause again, I'm working on the side full-time job, kids, family, this is totally side project. And uh, my mom had three bookshelves of stuff that she had collected on her grandfather. And um, you know, when he was in the, uh, when he was in the uh, KGB prison, for uh, over a year, they interrogated him, and say what you will say what you will about the Russians. They recorded it all in transcripts in Russian. So there were three thousand pages of interrogations in Russian that my that my mom got translated into Lithuanian by a friend of hers, and so I was reading the Lithuanian version 
you know, with my American Lithuanian dictionary, kind of going through it very, very slowly, making sure I understand it. So that took me a long, long, long time to get through all that and uh, to organize my notes on that. Then, but the other funner part of it was when he was in the uh, Stutthof concentration camp, he wrote 70 letters to my grandmother um, in German and my grandmother translated them all into Lithuanian. And so they were essentially like love letters, prison letters that he wrote to my grandmother. Those were a joy to read. I loved reading those. So I, I poured through those very, very slowly and translated a lot of it into English. And then he wrote uh, from that concentration camp, a fairy tale to my mom, because she was uh, six years old at the time. And so I went through that fairy tale and kind of uh, worked on all that. And then, um, and then there was just a lot of articles on him, magazine articles, newspaper articles, Somebody had written a book on him and in Lithuanian. And uh, so I went through that very slowly. And so all of that took me a long time. So I spent a lot of time just on that heroic side until I finally uh, started to dig into this terrible rumor. So I, I do just want to remind our younger listeners, you know, Sylvia's mother is doing all of this research in, I think you said the 60s, 70s, and 80s. This is before the internet. This was like legit research. And to get that sure. translated, she couldn't just pop it into Google Translate and get a, you know, kind of half-assed translation. You had to, she had to correspond with someone in Lithuania to get it all figured out and I and to have three bookshelves of that information that with no internet access blows my mind so right like it makes me wonder like what she had to go through to get the transcripts like the Russian transcripts and stuff like that couldn't have been easy no I don't know the full story but I know uh it was it must have been very very difficult I know I think bribes were involved to get the Russian transcripts and uh, I know she had to pay someone to translate it all from Russian into Lithuanian. And I know they had to like send it out in parts from Lithuania to my mom in Chicago. So I know that that part was really complicated. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was something. That's just an unimaginable amount of work. I, I can't even begin to wrap my head around it. Um. So Lithuania has the grim distinction of having the highest percentage of Jews killed during the Holocaust. And I learned about World War II and the Holocaust in school, and I grew up reading it on my own. And I kind of thought I had a pretty good idea of the whole situation, but I didn't—I don't recall ever learning about Lithuania or the Holocaust there. And like, why do you feel that is? Because I feel that kind of ties into this um, the narrative in Lithuania is very different from the reality. And then us as American educated, non-Lithuanian students never even heard of Lithuania. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it might be beneficial to just give a quick history of Lithuania after World War One, um, because this explains a little bit of that. Uh, Lithuania had been occupied by Russia, by Germany, by Poland, uh, for uh, on and off for like 700 years of its existence until World War I. Then in World War I, it finally had its own independence. And it had its independence for just 22 years when it was a democracy and a very young democracy. And uh, that's when my parents were born. That's when my grandmother met my grandfather in that 22 precious independence time. Then came World War II, and uh, 1940, in come in the Russians again. They, they take Lithuania over. 1941, the Nazis come in and push out the Russians, but now the Nazis have Lithuania for three years. And then after that, in come back the Russians in 1945. So, and then the Russians had stayed in Lithuania from 1945 to 1990. And I, I call it like the deep freeze. Uh, this was the, you know, the time of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And uh, really in the United States, uh, 
Only spies maybe knew what was going on behind the Iron Curtain. Um, and even Lithuanians themselves in Lithuania probably did not get the full story of what happened during the Holocaust. That whole thing was just completely covered up. It wasn't Jews who died in the Holocaust. It was Soviet citizens. So the Jews never had even their own kind of uh, identity in the Holocaust behind the Iron Curtain, um, the way the way we understand it, it, they were just labeled as Russians or Soviet citizens. And that was it. So that was a big, big part of the cover-up. Uh, so the Holocaust was not really studied in any great length, the way it kind of was even in the United States. And so I didn't even know about the Holocaust in Lithuania. Nobody ever talked about the Holocaust in Lithuania. They only talked about Lithuanians being sent to Siberia by the Russians, and that's it. So, um, so the Eastern uh, Bloc, all the countries that were taken over by the Soviet Union until 1990, kind of have you know this in common that um, the Holocaust was just kind of covered up there. And then in 1990, when everybody kind of got free and started looking at things, the only enemy really was Russia. And, uh, you know, nobody really wanted to talk about the Holocaust. Well, and then that idea of labeling uh, people who died during the Holocaust, they're just Soviet citizens. And with Lithuania's contentious relationship with the Russians, it's like, well, I don't care about that. You know, it, yeah, it, it's like, I'm not going to look into you're, this. You're putting them in a category where you don't really want to ask questions or you don't feel the need to. And I am glad, though, it's not just like our education failed us. This was a global cover up, essentially. I think so. I think it was a global cover up, essentially. You know, there were some some few people here and there who knew about it. Um, but it, it just didn't come out, uh, in any big way. Mm -hmm. So in your research for the book and learning more about your grandfather, you got to speak to a lot of people that actually knew him or were around when he was around. What, what was that like for you and like learning other stories other than the ones that you got told as you were growing up? Um, well, by the time I started researching it, I really, uh, his contemporaries were almost all gone. And uh, I, I talked to very closely his one uh, witness who was there in 1941, this Damiona Strauka, uh, but he was, he was much younger than my grandfather. He was like 17 when my grandfather was 30. So he really looked up to my grandfather, you know, as, as an older teenager, but not as not as an equal. And um, and I have come to believe that if he saw anything happen, he just went into denial himself over, over any role that Lithuanians played over Jews. So he was kind of part of the cover up problem as well when I was talking to him and I had to kind of figure out that he was lying to me by just the things he wouldn't tell me, even like with direct questioning. So um, by the time I went to Lithuania again in 2013, uh, you know, so this was 13 years since, you know, I was there to bury mom and grandmother and I first heard that rumor. And then 13 years later, now I was ready to look into the Holocaust and my grandfather's role in Lithuania. But I didn't really learn it from his contemporaries. I, I had to learn, mostly I learned it from Jews. And uh, because they had witnesses who saw things and maybe some survivors here and there. And Lithuanians just discount all that. Oh, that's just, that's just uh, Jewish testimony. It doesn't mean anything. So, um, so, but of course, you know, being an American and being a journalist here, I, I took, I took it seriously. And so I, I took it on equal footing as any other witness or any other source. And, um, and then there was another, well, I guess, I guess I should talk about what I found even in my mom's archives. Yeah. Because, um, it's funny how, when you start opening your mind, you, you go, I, I went 
through my mom's archives again, and I found some pieces, even in her own archives, that made me realize that there was some evidence even there. And one piece was in 1933, my grandfather wrote this um, booklet called Raise Your Head Lithuanian. And, um, you know, he was only 22 years old at the time and he had just joined the Lithuanian army. But, you know, when I was, when I first opened it, I was thinking, oh, this is just gonna be something patriotic about how wonderful it is to be Lithuanian because there's a lot of that. And uh, I was shocked though, to start learning that it had to do with um, boycotting anything that Jewish uh, citizens had to sell. And so they didn't want Lithuanians to buy anything from the Jews. They wanted to boycott everything from the Jews. And it had this kind of language, Jews are the foreigners. Jews took over Lithuania. It's time for Lithuanians to stand up for Lithuania and, um, you know, don't buy anything from the Jews. Uh, if you have a choice to buy from a Lithuanian or a Jew, always go to the Lithuanian. So it didn't matter even if the Jewish people were raised in Lithuania, they were separating them out as different. Yeah, that's a big thing to point out that Jews and Lithuanians had very separate lives and even very separate languages, even though they all lived right next to each other. The Jews had like their own little shtetls, they call them, like mm -hmm. little areas and towns and Lithuanians kind of were around them, you know, and, um, and they, they didn't really socialize that much is my understanding. They, they conducted business a little bit, you know, uh, I'm sure there were exceptions to this. I mean, I'm sure, you know, there were friendships for, there were even marriages formed, but it was kind of all frowned upon. It was like this and, uh, segregation, almost just maybe not dictated by law, but just, no, this is just the way it is. And we're gonna keep it by that culture. way. Yeah. yeah, cultural More segregation. Culture. Yes, yes. So that, that was really uh, a big thing, I think. And um, there were about 200,000 Jews in Lithuania at the beginning of the Holocaust. And then at the end of the Holocaust, there were like 3,000. So um, it's almost a 97% rate of killing, of murder in Lithuania. And you had a better chance of surviving as a Jew in Germany than you did even in Lithuania. That is a shocking statistic. And that, I mean, that really kind of like we talked about before, we'd never learned about Lithuania or the, the Holocaust in Lithuania. So that really flies in the face of our reality. You know, what we've always grown up understanding about the Holocaust and the Nazis and World War II. And it's just an, it's just an unaccountable amount of life that's just gone yeah. and no one knew about it or was sharing that story no i mean all they would as far as they would go as it was all done by the nazis that yeah. lithuanians had nothing to do with it that yeah. lithuanians just stood to the side you know wringing their hands while the nazis did all the killing but that was not the case there were only um 600 nazis total in lithuania at the time so most of the killing in fact was done by lithuanians I mean, it's true, it would not have happened without the Nazis. That part is true. The Nazis mm -hmm. did give orders. That's true. But with only 600 Nazis, Lithuanians, you know, could have dragged their feet a little if they really cared about the Jews. They, they could have made it difficult to implement these orders. But they instead kind of enthusiastically jumped in and, and really did all they could to help the Nazis is what the problem was. Yeah, and it, it was my understanding from reading the book that this anima, this understandable animosity towards the Soviets was so strong that the Nazis were almost seen as liberators. Like, yeah, get those, get the Soviets out of here. We don't want them. Right. And with the existing anti-Semitism, it's like, well, uh, you're not really bugging us too much. You can you know, do whatever you want with these other people who we've already othered. Yeah. And as long as you keep the Soviets out here, it's almost a lesser of two evils situation. You said your grandfather wrote the pamphlet in 1933, right? 
and Lithuania was occupied in 1941. So yeah, there was already that anti-Semitism where people were already like, hey, we should make Lithuania for the Lithuanians. And so yeah, having the Nazis come in and be like, hey, we can help you with that. Yeah, that's, yeah, like uh, it makes sense that people were, not makes sense per se, but like that they would be more enthusiastic than people that, you know, were like, no, the Jews are fine. Like we don't, we don't want to lose them. Well, and that, exactly. uh, Lithuania wasn't necessarily uh, unique in that. Like in Poland, there was a ton of anti-Semitism, you know, long before they were already segregating Jewish students long before the Nazis showed up. So it was... I think it was across all of Europe. Yeah, yeah. It it was was just like that all across Europe. Which is horrifying. (laughs) This is just naturally happening without any invading force telling you that you should hate this person. It's just, no, everyone already just kind of has that hate built in. Um, but kind of going along with that idea. So one of the most shocking things that you uncovered was Jonas Nareka's role in the mass murder of Jews in Shole, Tolshe, um, along with the Plunge massacre. And how did you under- uncover this information? You, you've already been shocked by just the, the rumor that, you know, Jonas was, as you say in the book, a Jew killer. Uh, but then to actually find evidence that he had signed these orders, what was that experience? Well, it was devastating. And actually, I had finally found the order even even before 2013 in my mom's archive, uh, the most damaging order that he signed. He was he was head of the Shole district during the Nazi occupation. So, what, you know, when I was growing up, it was just said he was head of the Shole district and they kind of left off the Nazi occupation part. And um, so of course, when I was digging into this and putting it on the timeline, you know, I, I really realized that he was working, he was the highest Lithuanian one could be in that region under a Nazi. And, um, and so he wrote uh, nearly a uh, hundred orders. During the time he was uh, head of the district, it's kind of like being governor of that area. So during that time, you know, we found uh, with the researchers that he he must have, he wrote about a thousand orders. And of those thousand, about a hundred had to do with the Holocaust. And of that hundred, the most damaging one, the one, you know, that we could talk about for hours and hours is the one he wrote on, uh, August 21st, 1941, calling for the roundup of all Jews and half Jews in his region of Shole and to be brought to uh, a ghetto that he wanted newly created in Jagare. And so, uh, and he said they all had to be there within a week. And so, you know, imagine all these Jews having to leave their homes and uh, walk or maybe, you know, have a ride to this place. And um, by October, uh, I can't remember the date now, but it was, they chose Yom Kippur to kill the 2000 plus Jews, men, women, children, all kinds of ages, and they were all slaughtered. So um, his signature, is very clearly at the bottom of this uh, order. And yes, it was a translation from the Nazis, but his signature is still at the bottom of the translation in Lithuanian. And uh, several other orders that he wrote and signed were not translations. They were just written straight into Lithuanian. and then people, you know, sometimes people argue, but he didn't call for the killing of the Jews. He just called for sending them to the ghetto. But within that same order where he's calling for the rounding up of Jews and sending them to this ghetto, he's also calling up for the um, collection of the Jewish property and making sure that it's distributed well, thoroughly, properly. And so if these Jews were just going to be held in a ghetto nice and safe until the end of the war, why would he be concerned of distributing their property? Weren't they going to come home and weren't they going to need it? Well, the answer is no. Everybody knew they, they would not need it in the most gruesome way possible. And the, the way you're describing this is very much like um, 
you know, trying to suss out a crime. Well, you know, was it pre-met? What was the intention behind it? And you've got all this very compelling evidence that either way, no one expected these people to come back. And that's incredibly telling, you know, either the the ghettos were going to be so abhorrent that they were going to die there or, you know, they were going to be murdered. Right. Yeah, right. You, you said the ghettos were made like basically for that order. So they couldn't have been like great places. No, I mean, um, it was just basically, I don't even know how, you know, it was a very small space for these 2000 people. And, uh, you know, there was, there was, uh, like, a, a fence just basically put around the perimeter, barbed wire fence put around, around the perimeter. And, um, and, and they started digging a ditch. They were calling for the digging of a ditch in Jagade already in the shape of an L. Possibly for Lithuanians for Lithuanians. And, uh, and then on that day, that ditch was ready. There's, uh, I mean, there, there is so much intention you know, um, having the the final execution be on a, you know, primary Jewish holiday, the Elsh, like, it's, there are all these little details that just make it even more chilling. You know, this wasn't, this wasn't, like, business, you know, th this was pointed, this was yeah. heated, and, you know, there was a lot of emotion and hate behind this. Um, yes. On a, on a uh, more touching note, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the more, the more, if not the most touching parts of your book is when you meet um, Simon, I'm going to butcher this last name, Dovidovichus. Ah, I was close. Uh, really who, close. Who is a Jewish museum director and descendant of Holocaust survivors who gave you a tour of the Holocaust um, or gave like you a Holocaust sites. tour of Lithuania. Can you tell us more um, about that experience in meeting Simon? Yeah, um, I, ha I have a friend who used to work for the Sun-Times, um, Howard Walensky, <clears throat> and uh, he's Jewish. And he called me up maybe in 2012 when I was already, um, you know, believing that my grandfather now played a role in the Holocaust. And I was talking to him about it. And he had come home from a Holocaust uh, tour in Lithuania. And I'm like, what do you mean a Holocaust tour in Lithuania? I had never heard of such a thing. And he said, well, it's, uh, you hire a guide and he takes you to the places where you think your parent, your relatives might've been buried during the Holocaust. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I never heard of this. This is, this is terrible. I can't believe you did this. And he said, yeah, I know, but Jews do this. We go there and we, we pray over where we, you know, believe, we have our best guess of where they were, where they were buried. And um, I was very moved by this conversation with him. And, you know, I kept picturing his family, like trudging through Lithuania and, you know, standing before a mound of dirt and, and praying the Kaddish. And um, I called him up a few days later and I said, Howard, I have a really crazy idea. He said, okay. I said, what do you think of uh, my getting in touch with your Holocaust guide and seeing if he would take me on a Holocaust tour of all the places my grandfather may have been involved in killing Jews? And he's like, wow, that is a really, really crazy idea, Sylvia. <laughs> even even just saying good. it out loud, it's like, um... Like, it's one of those things that it yeah. doesn't sound, like, it sounds kind of terrible, but, like, I like that even he was, like, that's a good idea. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, because he was a he was a reporter, and so so um, so he said I'll ask him. So he asked him, and Simon said no, at first, and um, and then it took him a few weeks, and Simon started looking into my grandfather's life, and then he emails me directly. And he said, you know, I've been looking into your grandfather's life. And despite myself, he's a very fascinating character. And I think I'm getting drawn into the story. And I would like to help you if you're still interested. I'm like, yes, 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 I'm interested. I really want to do this. So that's how it started. And, um, you know, we met 
and uh, we hit it off. We, we really hit it off. It was a really nice relationship and he really was very helpful to me. And he showed me uh, a part of Lithuania I had never knew, known existed, the whole Holocaust side of Lithuania. And uh, I started looking at it, Lithuania completely differently. And um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's like you get this vaccination or something and now you can, you can walk through and see the Holocaust side without falling apart, you know, as a Lithuanian and without being in denial over it. And of course you're sad and you cry at moments, but it's like, you can kind of deal with it. Like you're accepting the truth of it. And, um, and so he showed me the side of Lithuania that was just so important. And, um, he died in 2015. I didn't know how sick he was even. And uh, he died a couple years after that. Uh, so it was really, it was really, you know, and, and in 2013, I talked to people who have died since. Like if I didn't go then, I wouldn't have even have, you know, half of the story, I think. Uh, so, and even when I went, it was very late. Um, so um, he, so anyway, Simon had done, of course, a lot of research on the Holocaust. He was the director of that Sugihara Museum, and he lost relatives in Telche, where my grandfather was in charge of. And, um, but we kind of, I kind of spent a lot of time in Plunga because um, my grandparents lived there. I have relatives there. And uh, Simon was familiar with the area and Damionas really gave me a tour of the place. For, I, so I kind of, of the three places, I spent the most time in Plunga and I got the most involved there. And, um, you know, one big reveal, kind of I saved it as the climax of the book, was um, that it was, I was told my grandfather was nowhere around when the Jews were getting killed in Plunga. And I, and I kept asking Damionis, but he was the head of this uprising to get Lithuania back. And at the same time, all these Jews are getting killed. How could he be the head of all these military guys and, and these military guys go off on their own to kill the Jews without him knowing about it? That really makes no sense. And he said, no, no, he didn't know. He took his family and they went to Bastiche and uh, he had no idea what was going on. The, the, his men just acted independently. So, so what happened was um, I had gotten uh, close to this cousin there and the co my cousin, her mother was 10 years old at the time in 1941. And she knew my grandmother and my grandfather and she in fact used to babysit my mom who was two at the time. And so she would say, she told me that my grandparents suddenly got a house in the middle of Plunga in July, 1941, and that they stayed there for about six weeks until my uh, grandfather was asked to live in Shole when he was head of that uh, whole region there. And I'm like, what do you mean he lived, he found a house? In, in the middle of Plunga. How did, how did it like become free? And she just said, well, um, it just was empty. And then it's like, she couldn't even say it. And I'm like piecing it together. I mean, and I'm like empty because the people who used to own it were killed. And, she, and then she's like nodding her head. And I'm like, he took a house that was formerly owned by Jews. And he's living in that house? And she's like, yes. And then she's explained it was a very good house. At the time, it was a very nice house and had very good furniture. And, you know, um, so I, I'm like, where is this house? And she, she said, well, I could, I could point it out, but I can't walk. Because she was really sick. She was now in her 80s. And so then by luck, I talked to the librarian in Polonia and I told her about this. And this is probably the biggest piece of luck I got in the, whole in the whole story. And she said she was collecting pictures of houses that were formerly owned by Jews and cataloging them and putting the names of who they were formerly owned. Oh my God. 
I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. You're like, can I borrow that for, <laughs> yeah. for a minute? And um, and so she says, where was this house? I'll send you. I'll, and by this time, by this time, I'm in Chicago, and I'm working with her via email. And she's sending me photographs, and I'm sending the photographs to the aunt. And the aunt is like, no, it's not this one. The second one, no, it's not this one. The third one, no, it's not this one. At this point, I'm pulling out my hair. I'm like, we're never going to figure this out. <laughs> then I go back to the librarian, and I re-explain what the, what the house looked like and where it was. And then she sends the fourth one. No, it's not that one. Then comes the fifth picture. And I send that fifth picture to my aunt, and my aunt says, it was that one. And in that picture, the synagogue is right across the right next to this house. Oh, my goodness. And that synagogue is where the Jews were held as the ghetto. Before uh, they were, uh, if they didn't die there, they were taken into the woods and shot. It was right next to that house. That he lived in. That he lived in. There's no With my grandmother and my two-year-old mother. Like, he doesn't know. So, I mean, obviously... There, there is, there is documentation. There are signed orders, and there is plenty of circumstantial evidence to support um, Jonas Nureka's activities as a war criminal. Um, but even the genocide center of Lithuania and a lot of other people—I mean, culturally, but then officially from the genocide research center—have continued to deny it. And there have been things, you know, like, oh well, Sylvia is not like a real historian. I'm like. She did the work. I don't. So I mean, how? How I only have three other... master's degrees? I'm. I must yeah. be an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, how? How? How do you explain that? That continued denial and like people who you talk to and and other family members who still live in Lithuania. How did they react when the the book came out? Um, my relatives in Lithuania, for the most part, were unhappy. They did not like. They, you know, I think when I was there, I was very honest. I'm looking into my grandfather's role in killing Jews. But I don't think anybody thought the book would get this big. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just, you know, this uh, reporter, you know, digging into her grandfather. Nothing's going to happen. Um, so I think, I think everybody underestimated this book and this story. And when it just, when it did get big, uh, I got a lot of pushback. I have one nice aunt in Lithuania who, who you know, loves the book, or if not loves it, at least she still loves me. Um, <laughs> but, but everybody else has kind of taken big steps backwards away from me. So, and I, I feel like part of you had to know that was a possibility that you were cutting ties with family members by I, digging you know, into this and telling the truth. Yeah, uh, you know, as a journalist, you you always know that when you write something, there's a reaction, and so um, I was I was trying to prepare myself for for this reaction because I knew something like this was going to happen. So but of course, you're never fully prepared. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's never something like that could I don't think ever be easy. Well, and just you know the these realizations that you're having about your grandfather who was you know held up on a, a saintly pedestal through you know you growing up having those realizations takes an emotional toll, and then there's the emotional fallout of publishing the book. Yeah, yeah, it's. Um... I mean, all I can say is my faith got me through it. Uh, that's that's what I, that's what I lean on all the time. And so I just kept praying, God, if this is true, you're going to have to help me. And if it's not true, just block it. And so that was kind of my mantra. I this is even a question that we have, but I think it's really interesting you bring up faith because there are so many points in the book that feel 
supernatural. You know, there's the the candle at your grandparents' wedding blowing out and that being a really bad omen. You know, you just happen to be a journalist. You you know, um, the librarian just happened to have be collecting yeah, photos, photos of houses of like these very specific houses, and it almost feels like okay, this story needed to be told, and the universe was like. It's gonna come out. You right. can't keep this. You can't keep something this big a secret for right. long. I would say, or even like Simon originally saying no, and then being like, yeah. "Okay, I'm super interested in this, and it, I'll help you." It, it just there's so much kismet. It's it's eerie in the best way possible. I know. I'm even getting chills now as you like put it all together. Like it's true. Yeah, I really yeah. believe there was a guiding hand in this. I really do. So now, now for a simple, simple question, but complicated so after writing this book after finding out everything you found out what what are your feelings for your grandfather johannes jonas Jonas. sorry (laughs) um i've given this a lot of thought and um you know there's a there's a catholic saying and i'm sure other cultures or religions have it too like but you know it's love the sinner hate the sin and so uh, I still love him because he's my grandfather, but of course I reject what he did. And so that's the short answer. Yeah, it's like, like I said, it's a complicated question with a complicated answer. There's a lot of complicated feelings behind it. But yes. I, I think that's, one, first of all, incredibly healthy. But, you know, you're, you're telling the story of Jonas and he had all of these qualities that were admirable and were worth venerating. And so I I appreciated the the honesty and the the dimension that he had. He, he was he was a person, you know, and you don't have to excuse anything he did to reckon recognize he was multidimensional. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, all humans are multidimensional yeah. again. And so. Uh, yes, he ended up being the villain in the story, but he had, you know, some redeeming qualities. Um, and that's why he was lifted up as such a hero. Of course, they blotted out everything he did with the Holocaust. And, and now Lithuania itself has, has to kind of decide about what do they do about its own role in the Holocaust? There, there is like maybe now a reckoning starting. Yeah, there's like a bigger decision yeah. for Lithuania to make now. It's, you know, where where do we stand on this issue? Because it happened, and people now, you know, there's more information coming out about what actually happened in Lithuania. Yeah, and what stance are we going to take as a country? Something, right. something I really love that you said uh, when you were visiting the these Holocaust sites, and you it, it was like getting a vaccine where you could suddenly see it clearly and you could bear it. And it just reminded me, as someone who struggles with anxiety, every therapist I've ever had is like, the more you try to reject and push away the anxious thoughts, the worse it gets. You almost have you have to lean in and you have to accept it, and then you can deal with it. And it feels like this is a side of the country's history that people have just been pushing away, pushing away. And now everyone has to decide, yeah, are are we going to confront and deal with this? And ultimately that's going to be, it's going to be hard, but I probably more healing for everyone. Cause obviously there are still plenty of, you know, Holocaust survivors and the Jewish community is feeling not heard at all. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, this is not a big part of the book, but I was in therapy a lot too. And, uh, uh, and at at many points I was talking about this book and what it was doing to me. And I think all that therapy really helped me too, um, in coming to terms with this book. And I don't know if I could have written this book without all that insight that I was getting in therapy. So I have to say that, and I, and I say, and that's why I say this phenomenon is more psychological than historical mm-hmm. because it's that denial that is so much easier to, <laughs> to embrace than the pain of the truth. And we're still seeing a lot of those similar effects and, you know, phenomena today, you know, the, oh, well, it's just propaganda. Oh, someone in that category said it, then we don't have to listen. We don't have to believe it. It's fake news. All of this 
rewriting of history and ignoring what's actually happened. And that was something I appreciate about your book, not just being Jonas Narika was born on this day and this year. You know, it was it was about your journey as a person having to do the hard work and confront the truth and, and to actually have to find out about it. And honestly, that's something that a lot of us could do much better right. at with, with more basic and less, you know, emotionally complex things. Um, so I, I know we're coming up on time. So what can our listeners do um, to, to help? Like, do you have a call to action? Cause obviously a lot of this is still being denied. I don't know. I mean, uh, the first thing is just to become aware of, uh, what is going on. And it's not just Lithuania. I mean, it's the Ukraine, it's Poland, um, Lithuania, Latvia. So, um, all of these countries that are, that are now, you know, free of the Soviet Union, I mean, except for Ukraine now, poor Ukraine, um, you know, ha have, the space to look into this, you know, in therapy, you, you know, you, you can't look at your, your traumatic past until it's safe to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Lithuania now is in a safe space to do that because it's free, but it's still a young democracy. It's only 32 years old. So it's still, you know, I mean, even the United States with its 200 plus years, it doesn't have it perfect. So, um, so it's, it's still trying to, you know, recover from the trauma of having been occupied by the Soviet Union for so long. And, and it's still got the threat of being reoccupied. I mean, it's really kind of freaked out over, you know, what's happening in the Ukraine and Lithuania is where it's going to be next. Yeah. So, um, so I guess just, uh, becoming aware of the issue and, if a genocide could happen in Europe and get covered up there, what chance does uh, do the the victims of genocide have, like in Africa or the Middle East or China? It's. I mean, it's if, still if it can't happening. even be resolved in Europe. Yep. Yeah, that's terrifying. When, when I was young and reading about the Holocaust and all that, something my mom would always tell me, she's like, you know, this could happen today. Someone could show up at our house today and just be like, you don't live here anymore. You don't own this. And that I, she, she was very repetitive with that point. I was like, mom, mom, I get it. And like, I'm five or six. I don't oh. get it. But you know. <laughs> Is that behind your anxiety? That probably caused it. Um, <laughs> that's something I'm working out in therapy. <laughs> but you know that that would now I'm able to put that in context and really appreciate that lesson. That this isn't something that you know. Oh, that just happened forever ago. We don't have to worry about it. It's something that not only continues to affect affect us, but it's something that continues to happen. We're not just dealing with the after effects. We're dealing with a present in which this kind of thing can and does still happen. Well, and the more we ignore it, and the more people choose to say, be like, oh, here are the facts. And people are like, no, those aren't the facts. Like, I don't want to listen to them because so-and-so said them. The more likely it is to happen again. Yep. You can't learn yep. from the past if you refuse to look at it. Right. Well, you've suddenly, certainly done your part in sharing this story and sharing the facts and, and doing doing the research and every every time so in the book there are the sections where it sh it has the uh you know the genocide research center's official statement they're like well she's not a she's not a historian i'm like i am getting so angry right now <laughs> like, imagine how she feels yeah no i i would be i would just be so frustrated but you you're like i'm publishing the book anyway let pe let people you know decide and uh i i can't commend you enough and inviting us on this journey that was just so deeply personal and it i'm gonna fangirl i'm gonna yeah. freak out again oh, <laughs> i'm trying to be so professional so much. thank um, you um, on the note of publishing the book where can our listeners find you find your book like is it available everywhere just let us know <laughs> yeah, it should be available everywhere. Of course, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the other online sites. And it's in many bookstores. 
It's in many libraries. If it's not at the one you visit, I think you can just ask for it and they can get it for you. Um, you can find me through my website, sylviafody.com, and there's a way, my email's there. You can contact me that way. I'd be happy to respond. Yeah, and we'll, we'll link your website and everything. Yeah, um, okay. So people can find it a little easier. Well, yeah, that's great. Sylvia, I, I can't tell you how much it means to us that you would take, you know, even a moment, let alone a little over an hour and speak to us. Um, and I, I can't recommend your book enough. It was hard to get through emotionally, but definitely worth it. Um, and you taking us on that journey is incredibly meaningful. Um, you can also find it on Audible if you're like me and don't have time to actually sit down and read a book and you want to like be working out and start, you know, running through your rage and listen to it. So it's, it's very cathartic. Um, again, Sylvia, thank you so much for joining us. We can't thank you enough. And, uh, we will link everything in the episode description. And seriously, if you haven't read, uh, the Nazi's granddaughter, also known as storm in the land of rain, what are you even doing? That is, that's what we're all about on this show. So go freaking read it before I have to call your mom and tell her and like tell on you, okay? (laughs) Thank you. Thank Um, you. Well, thank you so much for joining us and have an empowered day, Sylvia. Thank you, you too. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for listening to another very special episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAHpod. Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com where you can find our email address or just our form to email us. Um, You can also find our merch, which we have some pretty sweet merch. And you can also find a link to our Patreon where you can donate for as little as $1. You can see our video of interviewing Sylvia. You get to see her. Oh, my God. We got to talk to her. It was great. Um, Okay. I'm going to freak out later. I'm going to freak out later. We're almost done. Contain. Um, And uh, obviously rate us five stars wherever you listen. And seriously, go buy Sylvia's book, because if you haven't, what are you even fucking doing? As always, I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day, y'all. Bye! Hey guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to, or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank goodness. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages, and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash herstory.